Hello, Francesca. I finally found that coffee that you mentioned to me. The Kenko Salted Caramel Latte. Kenko Duo Salted Caramel Latte. I've just made it. I am yet to try it. It's sort of like they were going off the Dolce Gusto Nespresso vibes. They're in little pods, but you don't put it in a machine. So like you open it, you put in the milk into your cup, then you put in hot water. Then you put the hot water into this, which has the like coffee espresso stuff in it. And then you put this into the hot milk, which has obviously got flavor on it, the salted caramel. So it's going to be very hot because like when you put in milk and coffee, it like, it cools it down, you know? So yes, I have found it. Finally, if anybody knows something else I should try, please send me a message or comment. Okay, here we go. Oh, hey, that is good. It is, <laughs> it's saltier than I expected. Usually salty, salted caramel is more caramel than salted, right? So it's like slightly savory. I like it. I could have put in more water. I don't have a lot here, but I'll, I'll be okay. Oh, okay, and today, Deborah, please don't hate me. I am going to attempt to knit for the next few episodes. Deborah, uh, one of the Patreons, she does these amazing knitted like shawls and scarves and hats and jumpers and stuff. Like she's very talented with lots of different like patterns and crochets and stuff like that I haven't knitted in years and I don't think I've ever knitted anything other than like a scarf which is the obviously the easiest one my plan is I want to you I want to knit a cushion cover is that stupid let's see so I found a video online I'm going to watch it now while I try to knit okay oh my god I already have a problem like I can't find the end can I just cut an end oh wait I found one there's an end okay right oh dear oh they're okay right here we go <laughs> oh god what have I got myself into? Oh shoot. It's gonna be so colourful. A slip knot. I did it! I hate the word yarn. Yarn. It's wool. Or string. Okay, now that I have started knitting, let's get into the episode. Richard Gordon Lancel Green was born on the 10th of July, 1953. He grew up in a world, which is like, I think, an area outside Liverpool. We're in Liverpool again. A lot of stuff happens here, hey? Richard was born into wealth and high society. His father's family had occupied Pulton Hall. Isn't it gorgeous? Oh my, how lucky to grow up in this house for generations. My house does not look like this. 
The Lancel Green family had been lords of the manor since at least 1093. That's like nearly a thousand years. Nearly a thousand years this guy's family has been in this house. It must be haunted. They were an educated, were, I guess they still are, an educated and well-connected family. Richard's father was a well-known and respected children's author, popular for his adaptations of the Arthurian, Homeric myths, and Robin Hood. I know, I know that one. I know that one. While Richard's mother was a drama teacher, so she was also into literature. And she was an adjudicator in Hong Kong. How cool! So, growing up, Richard's love for literature was obviously and easily inspired by his parents. But Richard's particular fascination and childhood obsession was the mysterious novels and intelligent protagonist, Sherlock Holmes. At just seven years old, Richard began his lifelong collection of Sherlock Holmes memorabilia. He even created his own version of 221B Baker Street, the fictional place where Sherlock Holmes' like office was. So he created this little model house in his attic in Poulton Hall, gleaning materials from thrift shops, junk, st- junk stores, and of course from the family's very own antique house. As Richard got older, he began to assemble his literary collection. He was growing more serious about his fascination, collecting any edition of Arthur Conan Doyle's books and personal items, as well as posters and just like novelty items that were just Sherlock Holmes theme or Doyle association. Like I said, the family was well-educated, as was Richard. He went to Berkshire Berkshire College and then University College, Oxford, where, of course, what do you think he got a degree in but English? He probably already had that degree. He probably did all that reading already. Yeah, didn't need to study. After leaving college, Richard travelled extensively throughout Europe, India and Southeast Asia. After his travels, Richard delved passionately back in to his first love, Sherlock Holmes. Eventually, Richard was considered the world's foremost scholar on Sherlock Holmes and Arthur Conan Doyle. He knew everything. People went to him for advice and opinions. And as he got older, he still collected Sherlock Holmes and Arthur Conan Doyle memorabilia. He was also a co-editor with Michael Gibson of the first comprehensive bibliography of Arthur Conan Doyle. And they had published a series of writings that had never been collected in book form. In 1984, the biography that him and Michael had worked on received the Special Edgar Award, whatever that is. I think it's after Edgar Allan Poe from the Mystery Writers of America. Richard also published three books independently without Michael. 
my favourite, which I'm not going to read, but it's kind of cute, was Letters to Sherlock Holmes, published in 1985. For this book, Richard had collected the most interesting letters that people had actually posted to Sherlock Holmes. Like, letters to Santa Claus. Like, people were actually posting letters to, like, (laughs) Sherlock Holmes and Watson, you know, asking to solve a riddle or maybe, like, a cute Q&A. Of course, 221B Barker Baker Street doesn't exist, but the closest one in London to that street was the Abbey National Building. It's closed now. I believe Abbey National was bought, right? So at the time, the Abbey National Building was the closest to 221B Barker. Barker. Baker Street. Baker Street. So he was able to collect all these letters from Abbey National. And if we look around here, we can see that there is now a 221B Sherlock Holmes Museum. There's actually a lot of like Sherlock Holmes stuff around the street. Like, why not? Do it. That's fun. Must be like a pride of London. Now, Richard was not a little bookworm, if that's what you were thinking. How rude. Richard loved attention and was described by people as a bit of a showman. From 1996 to 1999, Richard was the chairman of the Sherlock Holmes Society. At the events, he would dress up. He had the habit of dressing up as a 19th century master of ceremonies. Yes, I didn't know what that was either, so I had to look it up. This is it. It's like that little tuxedo penguin tuxedo suit all like old school yeah so he would wear this at events but remember it's the 90s like it's the 90s like Boyzone and Spice Girls are playing on the radio while he's dressed like this (laughs) what an attention seeker good laugh Richard apparently Richard also dressed in costume when he went to Switzerland He went to visit this waterfall that was written in the Sherlock Holmes books. So apparently this was where, in Switzerland, that Sherlock Holmes had, like, died. He was, like, killed by his nemesis, Moriarty. Moriarty. And according to the canon, the lore of Sherlock Holmes, he was dead for eight years. Basically, Arthur Conan Doyle didn't write a book for eight years until he resurrected Sherlock Holmes. I wonder, did he kill him again? So yes, uh, Richard Green had uh, encyclopedic knowledge of Arthur Conan Doyle and Sherlock Holmes and was considered the world's foremost scholar. I've said that already. Although sometimes his love for all things Doyle and Sherlock bordered on obsession. In the early 2000s, Richard was working extensively on notes collecting material for another book. This was to be a three-volume biography on Arthur Conan Doyle. So he needed as much material as possible. He needed everything he could get his hands on if this was going to be the best biography in the world about Arthur Conan Doyle. So Arthur Conan Doyle, papers and manuscripts were to be sold at auction. And Richard wanted to get his hands on them. But instead of, you know, bidding at the auction, may I remind you where he grew up? He was born into wealth and high society. He has money. 
Instead of bidding, Richard used lawyers to get his way. Sort of like a brat, hmm? Using legal wranglings, Richard was able to get the Arthur Conan Doyle papers and private papers, uh, like personal papers, letters and manuscripts. And this was something that Richard actually regretted. He didn't like how messy it was, um, you know, using lawyers. It's just so serious, you know. Uh, but like over literature, which is meant to bring joy, happiness, you know, excitement. is It's all too real for a fictional series. Although he said he regretted it, his actions didn't reflect his words. Because this was not the last time Richard would interfere legally in the world of Arthur Conan Doyle, his legacy and distribution of personal items. In early 2004, there was an auction at Christie's. Ooh, so fancy. They were putting up on auction the lost archive of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This contained 3,000 letters notes, and drafts for books, material providing a deep insight into Arthur Conan Doyle's life. The papers included private correspondence between Arthur and his family members, as well as prominent figures of history, including Winston Churchill, P.G. Wodehouse, Theodore Roosevelt, and Oscar Wilde. Richard needed these papers. So basically, Richard was of the opinion that these letters, this lost archive, were the property and part of the collection that the author's daughter had inherited. The daughter, now dead, had bequeathed her collection to the British Museum. Oh, sorry, the British Library. And this is the British Library. Richard argued with Christie's, saying that these 3,000 papers were either mixed up or stolen from Arthur's daughter by another relative, a great-nephew, and these were being sold illegally. The British Library should have them. Richard was also nervous about the fact that the auction was dominated by very wealthy American bidders. Peter pitters, bidders who were no doubt going to take these records, this archive, out of the country. How dare they? Now, there is some merit in this conservation, like, argument, but let's face it, Richard was probably just being greedy. He wanted access to these papers for his book. This book was going to make him a lot of money and a lot of fame. And if these papers were taken away, he would have no access to them. But if the British Library had them, he would have access to them. And he wouldn't have to pay a penny. He doesn't have to bid. Remember, he is a millionaire. He could have bought them. He chose not to. Also, like, I think perhaps he felt entitled to the papers because he was the world's foremost scholar, he should automatically have a say in what happens to them. Bit of entitlement here, I think. Anyway, so he tried to stop the auction from going ahead, but was unsuccessful. 
he couldn't prove that the papers were the property of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's daughter. The British Library and Christie's, they both assured Richard that the great nephew had inherited them legally and everything was sound. So the auction went ahead. So the auction went ahead and the 3,000 papers, the 3,000 pieces of lost archive were sold for nearly one million pounds. Richard was raging and could speak about nothing else for weeks. He was human. His life's work was building towards the ultimate Arthur Conan Doyle biography. He was tormented that these papers were to be distributed across America. But soon, Richard's rage turned to fear. In early March 2004, Richard began to unravel and confide in his friends. He believed that an unidentified American man was following him. He even told the newspapers, something might happen to me. Richard was extremely nervous and hadn't slept for weeks. He thought that perhaps his obstinance towards the auction was rubbing people the wrong way. Richard was paranoid and feared for his safety. His behaviour became increasingly erratic. When talking on the phone to his sister, he accused her of not being her. Like, he thought she was an imposter, pretending to be her. He was also convinced that his peers were conspiring against him. They were out to get him. And someone was watching him. So one evening, Richard went out for drinks and dinner. Dinner and drinks, I suppose. (laughs) That's not the way I drink it. I do drinks first, then dinner. So he went, so Richard, anyway, so Richard went out for dinner and drinks with his ex-boyfriend, Lawrence King. They had dated for two years, but it didn't work out. And then for the next six, they just remained good friends. Richard drank wine heavily throughout the whole dinner. With the auction dominating conversation, obviously. When the pair went back to Richard's for some coffee, Richard insisted they talk in the garden. He was convinced the whole apartment, every room, was bugged. He told Lawrence, someone is out to get me. On the evening of the 27th of March 2004, Richard's sister Priscilla telephoned his flat. She was super worried about her little brother's mental health and well-being he was spiraling Richard didn't answer the phone Priscilla was taken back when the answering machine's message was different Richard had had the same voice mail message for the last 10 years all of a sudden it was an American voice on the phone Priscilla knew something was wrong So she left a message and when Priscilla hadn't heard back from her little brother, she got in the car and went to London. Priscilla arrived at Richard's luxury flat at noon and rang the bell. No one answered. So Priscilla, she didn't know what to do. So she just called the police and explained the situation. And the police came. They told her to wait downstairs. They went upstairs and broke down Richard's door. As they searched the flat, they found Richard. He was found laying on his double bed, dead. 
he was surrounded by stuffed toys, posters, and of course, Sherlock Holmes books, and an almost empty bottle of gin. Around his neck was a black shoelace, in which a wooden spoon had been twisted. The spoon was used to twist the lace, the cord, tighter. The 50-year-old millionaire had been garroted, which is strangled to death by like a string or, or wire. Not a good way, not a good way to go. Richard was remembered, of course, at Poulton Hall, his family's home, heritage home. And a Thanksgiving service was held at the local church. 150 people were in attendance, which is quite a big funeral. There were hymns, prayers and trumpeters from the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. And of course, there were readings from Sherlock Holmes novels. But of course, at Poulton Hall, the main topic of conversation was Richard's obsession with the auction before his death, as well as his spiralling mental health and well-being and behaviour. It was so erratic. He was so paranoid. But people wondered, was Richard right? Was the paranoia warranted? Now, unfortunately, this there's not much of an investigation. When police got to the door, with Priscilla downstairs, remember, when police got to the door, they found no signs of forced entry. And when police found Richard on the bed, surrounded by all his stuff, they immediately thought, oh, this is, he's done this to himself. And like that the body was removed. The criminal investigation department was not involved. Nobody involved in like crime scene stuff came by. So no DNA, no fingerprints, nor pictures were taken of the scene. What little investigation work was done was of course the police investigated Lawrence Keane, Richard's ex-boyfriend and possibly the last person to see him alive. Possibly. We don't know if he is or not. So right off the bat, police asked, you know what they asked, was this a gay sex thing that went wrong? <sighs> uh, oh my. Why? Lawrence was like, oh for God's sake, no. And resented the implication. And from then on, Lawrence refused to do any police or media interviews, which I think is a smart move. You know, you could say something and somebody could take it out of context. Just messed up. Priscilla told police that when she called, there was an American man's voice on the answering machine. But upon further inspection, this was actually just the voice, like the default voice that comes with the tape. Richard had deleted his own message. But why? Why did he delete it? And that was it. That was the whole investigation. They asked two people really stupid questions and chalked it down to suicide. So when Richard was passed off to the coroner the, for the death inquest, you know, to find out how he died, the coroner, he asked Holmes aficionados, is there any 
like kind of reference that Richard was trying to make to Sherlock Holmes or Arthur Conan Doyle like stuff in the canon in the lore in the Sherlock Holmes universe is there a reason he has died in this way the Holmes aficionados got back to him and they said there was only one glancing fleeting reference to a garotter in the whole of the Sherlock Holmes book series and even though this was not part like a huge part of one of the stories or a main character or something it like it was not a huge twist in any of the lore the coroner said ah that must be it and wrote down probably probably was reenacting a scene from Sherlock Holmes if you ask me that's not a lot to go on Somebody who was as obsessed with Sherlock Holmes would not have chosen to die in a way that was so fleeting and glancing. Wouldn't he want to die, like, for example, in that waterfall, in the same place where Sherlock Holmes had died? No, am I, am I wrong? So anyway, yeah, the coroner put down that suicide was the most likely, expl- was the most likely explanation but did acknowledge that Richard did not leave a note, which is uncommon, and that garroting is a very painful and uncommon way to die, and usually an unsuccessful way, as most people who attempt this method usually just pass out from lack of air, like they fall asleep before the event takes place. Therefore, a very unusual and rare death. And the coroner, he agreed with the other Holmes aficionados. Murder could not be ruled out. And Richard Lancel Green's death was left open, unsolved. Richard's family and friends mostly agreed with the open verdict. His death was unexplainable. And everybody agreed that foul play was possible. But Richard was very disturbed, very disturbed at the time of his death. But was it to the point that he would take his own life? Many argued that he was devoted to his mother and would never do this to her. He would never leave her on her own without as much as a note. This is kind of a weird one, but one friend of Richard's pointed out that he had wine with dinner and there's no way Richard would go home and then mix wine with gin. Now, I have mixed wine and gin, but um, I am not high society and maybe high society folk don't. So that was his friend's point. (laughs) To this friend, the whole scene was suspicious. Like, remember, just because there is no forced entry doesn't mean that nobody was there. Richard could have let somebody in. Maybe it was Lawrence. Maybe he was in the room. However, one friend of Richard's does believe his death was at his own hands. He said Richard was totally deranged at the time, on the night of his death. On the very night of his death, Richard called up multiple people accusing them of conspiring against him. 
and bugging his apartment. Richard was also convinced he was being spied on by the Pentagon, specifically John Lennonberg. Lennonberg? He, John, is a policy strategy analyst in the office of the US Defence Secretary. Other than that, John is a prominent and well-respected author in the whole Sherlock Holmes world. I don't know what he writes, but if I have time, I'll put it up on the screen. And John Lillenberg was in town, in London, the same week that Richard was most acting erratic. And you know how people in the Pentagon, they had access, they, well, they did have access to LSD. We've all seen Wormwood, correct? We're on to you. <laughs> no, honestly, I don't know. John Lellenberg said to the press, I have no knowledge as to why he was so paranoid. The work I do has nothing to do with intelligence or surveillance on any level. But isn't that something a spy would say? Since Richard's death and funeral, the media and online discussion has drummed up further debates and theories and conspiracies. There has been much speculation that Richard's death was an elaborate suicide intended to look like murder, to cast suspicions on his rivals, John Lennonberg. This replicates the plot of one of the very last Sherlock Holmes mysteries, the problem of Thor Bridge. In this mystery, a woman dies by suicide in a way that was meant to implicate the woman that her husband had been having an affair with. Perhaps Richard had been planning this death for weeks. But of course, surely Richard's rivals would know this story. What if they staged the murder? Like, as a way to divert suspicion. Like a double bluff. There is also a half-concocted notion that there's like a curse of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Arthur Conan Doyle was a devout spiritualist. He was constantly trying to reach the dead and interact with them and talk to them. And apparently the curse goes that anyone who inherits Arthur Conan Doyle's, like, stuff also inherit bad luck. They die young, suddenly, tragically, or are barren. This happened to all of Arthur Conan Doyle's children, which is why Arthur Conan Doyle's stuff is being handed down through like nieces and nephews and stuff like that. Like not his immediate family. It's like, you know, other people. So basically Richard's death still remains an open verdict to this day. And Scotland Yard said they will reopen it if fresh evidence comes to light. Unfortunately for poor Richard, the biography remained unfinished at his death. Now, another great thing that might point towards the possibility that Richard staged this whole event in the hopes of forever being intertwined with Sherlock Holmes and Arthur Conan Doyle is the fact 
that it actually happened. Richard's death inspired a 2004 New Yorker article, Mysterious Circumstances, by David Gran, which in 2019 was turned into a play called Mysterious Circumstances. The play unravels the story and obsession that Richard had with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Sherlock Holmes, as well as Richard's mysterious Sherlock Holmesy type death and possible murder. And in this play, Richard would love this because Sherlock Holmes solves the mystery of Richard Green's death. Like, is that not what Richard would want? He would want to be remembered. He would want to be inserted into the lore. No doubt this story will eventually become like a movie or like a really serialized podcast. I too am perpetuating possibly Richard's wishes by covering it now, but it is just so fascinating. So did Richard get what he wanted? Forever intertwined in Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes universe? Or is someone else reveling in the fact that they created a fascinating yet unsolvable labyrinth? And in the words of Sherlock Holmes, or Arthur Conan Doyle I suppose, When you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. References in description. Slan. Also, I might be rebranding again. So subscribe because the name is probably going to change. I don't think Meet Him and Murder is going to exist as a title anymore. It's not good for SEO. Also, I am taking a break from... Instagram because I've been shadow banned so I'm not going to post on there for a month so either contact me on Facebook or on YouTube because I'm huffing with Instagram. How dare they shadow ban me? Who do they think they are? Anyway bye.